you know, the election of Donald Trump was involved things being sort of said in American politics, you know, language being used, democratic norms being violated in a way that they hadn't before. So again, pretty scary. Thanks for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. If you'd like to know more about our events or become a member, do check us out on our website, www.thetroubleclub.com. You can also find this linked in the description below this podcast. Uh, Helen Lewis, staff writer at The Atlantic, former deputy editor of The New Statement, and of course, uh, the author of Difficult Women, uh, A History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And something else actually that you do, which is amazing, is your blog, The Blue Stocking, isn't it? Well, it's a newsletter. I decided the best thing to do was to not tweet anymore because it's too easy to get yourself in trouble. But instead, just put it all into, yeah, like you say, a newsletter, which effectively now functions the way that my, when I used to have a blog back in the early 2000s. This is the same, the same spirit, really, recreated. Excellent. And something that kind of very much caught my eye when I was reading through a blog is something, an article you did about woke capitalism. And it's just a term that I'd never really heard before, but it's something that's very much come to light very recently. And I was wondering if we could just kind of start by talking about that and if you kind of explain what that is and the phenomena that's kind of taking off at the moment. Yeah, I mean, I thought and to some extent I coined it. And it turns out that Ross Dutat from the New York Times had talking specifically before about woke capital. So it's obviously one of those ideas that's in the air. And I don't mean to be dismissive about um, the term woke. The reason I used it was, you know, that it's it's if you're talking about modern social justice movements, the idea is supposed to be grass led, bottom, you know, bottom up, um, you know, opposed to power in, you know, in and the excesses of power. But yet the kind of forms of that have been co-opted by big companies. So, for example, there is really no good um, research that diversity trainings and the way that they're delivered in corporate settings affect people's real world behavior. Um, all the implicit bias association tests where you're asked to kind of click screens and, and see what words you associate with other words. It's really hard to see what the relationship is between those and um, and real world behavior. So, but nonetheless, something like eight, six, eight billion pounds a year spent by American companies on, on diversity training. Uh, when Keir Starmer, the Labour leader, got into trouble for referring to Black Lives Matter as a moment, not a movement, uh, he said, well, I'm going to go and do, do diversity training. And that kind of gives you the idea about what it's doing for those companies, which is it's a process to point to to say, we're taking this really seriously. And I said, well, that's great. I mean, I'd rather have companies take it seriously than not. But my worry is that it becomes kind of synthetic. And actually, is it really worth sending your highly paid corporate lawyers to sit in a seminar room for, for four hours listening to people tell them, you know, not to discriminate against people? Or if you're a company, you know, is it more worthwhile really just to pay your office cleaning staff at the London living wage or the living wage in wherever it is that you're working? Um, you know, is it really look at your hiring practice? We know stuff, for example, like changing the language of advertisements for jobs really matters to who applies. Uh, you know, taking names off CVs because we know that people discriminate against, um, you know, so-called ethnic names as opposed to names that sound like they're from a, a white English person. So all of that stuff to me is is probably going to do more. But the reason that I think that companies often don't want to do it is it costs them money and it threatens the power of people who are currently in charge. There was a big drive to get women on company boards um, and saying, you know, if you don't get up to 30 percent, then we'll impose a kind of mandatory quota. And suddenly, really, what happened there was a lot of uh, non-executive directors got appointed to boards. So women became invited onto the boards without really necessarily having any actual power on them. But you know, it was a way for companies to say we've got more women in the room. And that's how I feel that so much uh, activism now happens is it's about companies really pointing to stuff that they 
do. So the, my favourite example is the fact that um, if you look at Stonewall's list of diversity champions, it's got some extraordinary um, uh, LGBT champions, and one of whom is, is BAE Systems, right? And yeah. BAE Systems is an arms company which operates in Saudi Arabia, which is an explicitly misogynistic and homophobic regime, okay. and on other places like that. So it's like they're sponsoring pride parades in Britain, but in Saudi Arabia, they're they're selling weapons to you know a, 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 a theocratic regime yeah. that hates gay people. And how do you square those two things? And it's like, well, it, it's business. It's business, and it's 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 almost impressive, isn't it? That capitalism has found a way to bank and kind of get big, make big money from looking like they're woke and having good branding. And I think one of the worst examples I saw was when. I think Body Shop was trying to sell a tote bag by kind of trolling J.K. Uh, J.K. Rowling, and I think you know you think well, wherever come. What do you think is the worst example that you've seen of this? I think the tote bag was pretty bad. So J.K. Rowling did her. It was when she did her very long piece, actually, in which she revealed, among other things, that she'd been a victim of domestic and sexual violence. Yeah, and that was condemned as being um, transphobic. Her, her blog. And the Body Shop social media account did a little dunk on her where it's like, hey, JK, do you want to take a bath and read um, a book written by a trans person? And I thought, that's just deeply disrespectful to the person whose name you're invoking there, the the author of that book, that you're there being co-opted into a little social media dunk. And actually, it's really grim when you're talking, you know, when you're not, you know, you're talking about someone who's just revealed factually that they were in fear of their life because of the way that their previous partner acted towards them. And that's perhaps the motivating reason for some of the stuff that they're saying now. And I thought, that's it. That, to me, is the kind of classic example of it. And the, the interesting thing about that is it obviously it goes both ways, right? The Body Shop got a lot of pushback on that because people did feel it was incredibly tasteless. Uh, and I don't know whether or not it'd be interesting to know whether or not it, that, that cost them sales. But my point about it is that, you know, the left feels... Uh, you know that social justice activism is their their thing, right? That this is kind of the fact that we already like the British media is incredibly dominated by the right. You know, this is the way of speaking back to power. And the point about it is that actually, the whatever you want to call it, cancel culture or or capitalism, whatever, it's it's a tool. If if companies were willing to fire people or ditch their association with people based around a social media storm, you don't have any control over that, about whether or not that's a social media storm that you agree with. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, you know, in America, we particularly see this, the other things happen the other way around. You know, people get accused of offending Christians mm-hmm. and people call for their, their resignation or, you know, whatever it might be that somebody is, you know, is in a, in a gay relationship. Well, that's not family values. So does this brand want to be associated with them? And particularly, particularly America, where you don't really have to give particularly good reasons for firing someone. Lots of people are in what's called at-will employment. The idea that we would encourage companies to respond to maybe one or two people complaining by firing. And, and I think people assume that this is all happening to kind of New York Times columnists. It's, it's often not. It's often happening to people who just get caught in a viral storm. And the reason that they, you know, we don't hear about those people is because they're not New York Times columnists, right? They're just ordinary people whose lives get ruined and then the caravan moves on and they're never heard of again. Um, and, I, and I don't think you'd have, you don't have to do very much work in this area to hear lots of those stories. So when people kind of go, it's not happening, what I hear is, I am hugely incurious about this phenomenon and maybe incredibly unsympathetic. So no one has ever told me their story because as soon as you start writing about it, you get flooded with people who are terrified. You know, people in the public sector in Britain are really worried about having any kind of political opinion. Uh, And I mean that both in left and right wing terms. So I think anyone on the left who thinks this is a phenomenon that really benefits the left is probably wrong on that count. Absolutely. And I actually kind of capitalism in general, because of course, you know, 
this is a very terribly shallow way for companies to approach very, very serious issues. And like you say, paying you know, paying their staff members a better wage is, is a much better way of showing that they're for diversity. Um, you kind of talk about capitalism a lot uh, in the book and about, you know, you do ask the question, can the two, can the sexes ever be equal under a purely capitalist system? And what do you think is the response to that? Well, the answer is uh, no. I'm just reading a really interesting book, actually, by John Kay and Paul Collier called Greed is Dead, which is arguing, you know, against what people variously call kind of neoliberalism or hypercapitalism or the kind of legacy of Milton Friedman and other economists from the late 70s onwards, you know, that very hyper version of capitalism, which, you know, the whole idea is that the highest duty of a company, this is something Milton Friedman says, you know, is to maximize shareholder value. That's, you know, it's almost like his moral duty to do that. And of course, in those situations, why would you hire a woman who you think is going to get pregnant? Why would you hire a disabled employee? Why would you hire anybody apart from, you know, a young man with no dependence. Um, so, it, you know, if, if, if we accept this premise that businesses only exist as purely money-making machines, then, then you're going to have to have some pretty stringent laws in place in order to make sure that they, they employ a diverse range of people. But, you know, the, the problem with that is, I, and this is why I keep coming back to it, is, you know, I don't think businesses should fundamentally run like that. The people I admire, you know, I quite admire those Victorian industrialists who built, you know, proper housing for their workers, right? And you see that legacy now in uh, companies like Timpson's, extraordinary company. Now, not left-wing, Right, the guy who ran it, uh, the guy who currently owns it, Edward Timpson, is, as I, oh, hang on a minute, I'm getting, I'm getting my Timpsons wrong, but one of the Timpsons ran to be a Tory MP, right? So it's not, this isn't, you know, this isn't a kind of pure left-wing phenomenon. Absolutely. But they employ loads and loads of ex-offenders. Um, yes have a really big focus on people who come out of prison and giving them a second chance and, and developing their job skills. And that to me, you know, businesses should have a social responsibility. And part of that should be about paying full tax in the country mm -hmm. in which their operations are rather than the most advantageous tax regime for them. Mm -hmm. And part of them should be ensuring that their, you know, their employees can live mm -hmm. in, a, in, a, in a sort of dignified manner. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and, and not making all their money kind of from rent seeking. Um, you know, trying to encourage bits of the economy that actually involve people making things that are worthwhile, providing services that other people value. Absolutely. And just kind of caring for the communities in which they build their products and the people who they sell their products to. Um, I don't kind of want to continue on that, but I really want to talk about your incredible book, um, Difficult Women, History of Feminism in 11 Fights. And it really is fascinating the way that you've done this book and the way in which you've laid it out. Could you kind of explain, first of all, how would you describe the book and how would you describe the way you've written it? So one of the reasons I wanted to write this book, I started writing it in 2017, when if you're somebody who's kind of on the centre left, like me, the world felt pretty um, disappointing. Um, you know, whatever you think about it, whichever way you voted in, in the EU referendum, it wasn't a particularly um, edifying campaign. Uh, you know, the election of Donald Trump was involved things being sort of said in American politics, you know, language being used, democratic norms being violated in a way that they hadn't before. So again, pretty scary. Um, and I thought, well, you know, what's been really successful as a social movement? Feminism. Absolutely. 150 years ago, women couldn't go to university, you know, uh, just over 100 years ago, no women could vote. Um, you know, 50 years ago this year, we had the Equal Pay Act. Mm -hmm. You know, um, it's only 
yeah, 30 years ago, rape and marriage was still legal. That ruling is 1991. So, you know, the, all of this stuff has happened and it's been changed, you know, within a couple of lifetimes. You know, there are things that I put in the book, you know, happen within my lifetime. Things happen, loads and loads of things happen in my, in my mother's lifetime. Yeah. And I thought, well, let's, you know, let's look at how you fight. Let's look at how you win. Um, and also just because anyone who's writing about feminism is sort of, whether they like it or not, entering a kind of doomed who's the best feminist competition. Um, and I thought, well, I'm going to just be really upfront about the fact I can't write about everything. Um, I'm going to try and pick 11 emblematic. So, and I can, I can never, right, I'm going to try and name them all, but okay, so we'll go. The vote, uh, divorce, sex, love, which is lesbianism, uh, education, abortion, Oh God, I've already forgotten my own book. Uh, oh, the play and time. Time. And then uh, the rights be difficult is the final one. And then there's always the mystery one that I always forget, which that's, oh, uh, yeah, work. That's pretty work. important. Absolutely. The um, Grunwick strike in the 1970s. Yeah. Something I knew nothing about before reading the book, I have to say. Right. And I don't think many people would. And actually, the thing that's been interesting is the fact that, so, particularly when I've gone to older audiences, some of them have heard of some of the second wave feminists, because um, they remember them from the first time round. Yeah. They're kind of like, oh, whatever happened to her, kind of kind of thing. Um, but some of, you know, particularly among younger women, we don't really know the battles of the 70s. I didn't know when I started out. I didn't really know much about how the Equal Pay Act came to be, uh, or the Sex Discrimination Act. And this is something we kind of had a conversation about at Trouble. We had a kind of discussion on what we should have learned in history class. And if you could put one of these fights on, you know, the GCSE syllabus for next year, which one would it be? Well, I think I have a vague feeling that I did learn stuff about the vote um, at school. So I guess that's sort of cheating to pick that. But what I think what to me is interesting about the vote is how contested it was at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, there's a temptation now to look at those big universal struggles where you're just asking for women to have exactly this, be treated exactly the same as men mm-hmm. and think, well, that's really easy, isn't it? That's an easy demand. It's not as hard as asking for maternity leave or maternity employment yeah, things. Essentially saying women need to be treated differently because of their you know, unique biology. You're just saying, all I want is to be treated exactly the same as a man. Simple. Um, but the two, you know, two obvious things emerged from that. The first was the tactics of how you do it. Mm-hmm. Huge split between violent and uh, suffragettes and non-violent suffragists. And secondly, the order of priorities and who who are actually properly allies to you. Um, and, you know, the, the suffragettes got kind of thrown under the bus in favour of Irish Home Rule. Um, the Labour Party were pretty unhelpful to them because they thought that women would all vote Conservative. Um, you know, the, you know, the Conservative Party took a long time to come around. Winston Churchill was a big anti-suffragist for a really long time. He, he was variously liberal and a conservative. But, um, you know, the, the, the alliances they had to try and make and the strategic decisions they had to try and make are much more interesting than they're represented. And also the other thing that I think is quite useful and quite provocative to study now in light of everything that you know we're we're now thinking about rethinking the role of Britain and the British state is the violence they were subjected to you know the fact that the British state tortured women and radicalized them you know by force feeding you know it it is now seen by doctors that that is torture absolutely had it done dozens even hundreds of times Absolutely. And kind of something that you touch on very much is how um, one particular woman in the movement, I think it was Lady Constance Lytton, and how she realised that because she was a lady, because she was a lot of a lot kind of higher standing in society than a lot of these other women, she realised very quickly she was not being treated the same as other suffragettes. And we remember a lot of the names of the more kind of middle class fighters, but the ones who did 
that kind of went through the more horrible uh, torture process, like being forced fed in prisons, tended to be lower class and, and a lot poorer. Do you think that working class or kind of class differences still play a massive role in feminism today? Oh, hugely. And one of the things that's a really sobering statistic is the fact that more women from uh, ABC1 backgrounds, so uh, middle class backgrounds, and more women who've been to university describe themselves as, as feminists. You know, it's still seen as a kind of blue stocking um, concern. And I think you definitely saw that in some of what played out over, you know, the way that Hillary Clinton was painted as being sort of elitist. Mm -hmm. You know, this conversion of feminism got to offer, you know, ordinary American women. Um, and sometimes that criticism is justified and sometimes it's thrown at feminists by anti-feminists who also don't really particularly want to help working class women. They just want to paint their opponents as sort of snobs. Um, but, you know, it's, you know, it, it's, it's really difficult. The, the film Misbehaviour, I don't know if you've seen it, is really interesting. Oh, yeah, it looks excellent. So it's a film about the 1970 Miss World contest in which they have the eventual winner who's from, um, I'm going to get this wrong, she's from one of the Caribbean islands has an argument with Kira Knightley, who's playing a, a middle-class, you know, single mum, but who's now going to um, Oxford uh, as a graduate, you know, saying, well, you can win, you know, like, what you want to do, abolish Miss Wells, abolish women being judged on their looks. But, like, this is my ticket to to a, a good, solid life. And I think that's still a tension that, that really plays out, you know, that there will be some losers from you know, this, the, the, the eradication of, of the sex industry or of page three or whatever it might be, as well as winners. And something that you do talk about a lot, which I think is great, is the how a lot of women who are fighting for these movements have to be pragmatists. You know, when, you know, back kind of at the early the beginning of the 20th century, women realised it was only going to be property owning women that were going to get the vote. They kind of realised this was a, a win that they had to accept. They couldn't just, you know, refuse it and say, you know, it's either all women or the highway. Um, and that was really important for them securing the vote later on. Do you think, you know, how should we be, should we be pragmatists today as feminists? And how do we kind of balance a very kind of split opinion towards you know going for the you know the ideal solution versus taking what we can get yeah I think it's always hard to rule on particular cases but the general trend I would say from the reading that I've done is take the compromise if it establishes a principle so as you say what happened during the first world war is that in parliament that the speaker at the time held a conference a special conference about the fact that they said well we're going to have to finally give men under 30 you know working class men we're going to have to finally give them the vote because they're dying in millions and it's not unfair for them to return home at the end of the war and not be able to have a stake in democracy. And at the same time, we think this is probably the moment to you know, give, we can't keep women waiting any longer. But the fascinating thing about that is that if you enfranchise all women at once, because the number of men who had died in the First World War, women would have become the majority of the electorate. Yeah. And I go back to what we are saying with woke capitalism, what an extraordinary thing for any group of people holding power to do, <laughs> to go, all right, we'll let, you know, we'll make ourselves a minority of the electorate instantly from having had all of the power. Yes. You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. Um, so the fact that you know women got the vote at all is kind of extraordinary. Um, but both uh, Emmeline Pankhurst, who is the leader of the suffragettes, and Millicent Garrett Fawcett, who is the leader of the non-violent suffragists, were both at that conference. And they both signed up to that compromise about property owning women going first. And 10 years later, they got 
uh, they got all women. And the pattern repeats itself, you know, um, Mary Stokes was very active in the contraceptive movement, which then once you'd established the principle that a woman had a right to control her number of children she had, became easier then to start fighting for abortion rights. You know, gay marriage was preceded by civil partnership legislation, which established the idea that there should be some formal recognition for gay couples. The church is, you know, were rejected to calling it marriage. But actually the sky didn't fall in. And then really, you know, within a decade, you're getting people thinking that actually you can call it marriage and that's not going to, again, you know, like the fabric of society will not rent itself asunder. And the, the, the most interesting thing, of course, that happened with women getting the vote is that they didn't all vote for their own interests no. um, and, and still don't, actually. There are relatively few situations in which women vote as, as a block. Mm-hmm. I mean, like, you know, I mean, the, the Trump being a, the kind of classic example of, of the much cited stat that, you know, half of white women voted for Trump. And you think, well, you know, why would you imagine that um, a woman whose husband, brother, sons are all voting for, for Trump, she's going to feel some mystical communion with Hillary Clinton just because they've got the same chromosomes. So, you know, women women just do not vote in the way that men, men feared that they would. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things that you don't shy away from in the book is that, you know, feminists have to fight for women, even if we don't agree with them. And that a lot of the women in the book have, have very unpalatable views, I think it's fair to say, that we wouldn't consider to be particularly uh, PC today. And the title of the book is Difficult Women. It does come from a very specific place. Could you kind of indicate where that came from? Yeah, well, it's about the fact, first of all, that in order to change anything, you have to just be obstinate. And all the things that women are told not to be, you know, you, have, you oh, be kind. Why can't you know, be, put other people first, be selfless, you know, be the angel in the house, you know, mum will kiss it better. All of that kind of stuff that says, you know, don't, you know, put yourself second, don't push yourself, don't be ambitious. You know, that great Chimamanda Adichie, you know, you can have ambition, but not enough that it threatens the man. Yes. And, and that was one meaning of difficult. And the second was about how difficult it is to make progress happen and how often you are slogging away for years or even decades. You know, the right for women to vote, they went through the whole of the 19th century with sort of endless petitions and bits of civil disobedience. And, you know, really, you know, slogging away at that. And then the third meaning, as you say, is that is the idea that um, you know, people who achieve fundamental change or who spearhead movements are often quite difficult. Now, I've just been working, I've started work on my, my new book, um, which is about genius. And one of the things that's interesting about that is that great visionary CEOs, mm-hmm. sort of kind of Steve Jobs kind of figures, it's highly correlated with being pro- a productive, i.e. not a sort of dysfunctional, but a narcissist. Mm-hmm. Somebody who seeks glory, you know, who is quite grandiose, who, you know, is quite comfortable with people sort of saying, you're my idol or whatever it might be, because those are the people who end up inspiring people to kind of follow them. Mm-hmm. I think there's a parallel here in this book with the fact that, you know, these women who, who, who fought these fights had to be kind of monomaniacal. The suffragettes are really notable for this. You know, um, Sylvia Pankhurst, the third Pankhurst daughter, got kicked out of the suffragettes by her mother and sister because she appeared on a platform with a Labour politician. First of all, you're campaigning alongside men. And secondly, well, it was for, I believe, some, uh, some, a minor's strike action. Yeah. Second strike. <laughs> it wasn't about the vote. You know, they were supposed to do one thing only. They weren't a political party. They were campaigners for the vote. And, you know, the, the Pankhurst was super dictatorial. They fell out with pretty much everybody. Um, and, and actually, to an extent that historians are still arguing now about whether or not they, that became really counterproductive, they became too militant. And if the First World War hadn't started, they would have killed probably numerous people. 
Yes, absolutely. And it's also, you know, it's not just even that women are difficult and that they, you know, are, you know, kind of rub people up the wrong way, but you have people like Marie Stopes who dabble in things which are very, very, um, you know, difficult oh, to deal with. I reckon we're there, yeah. And I, again, I've just been reading more about the eugenics movement um, in the early 20th century. So she is, you know, she is interested in birth control, but like a lot of people, one of the reasons that she's interested in birth control is she's worried about, you know, what she called the poor, the degenerate, you know, the feeble-minded, you know, are breeding too much. Mm-hmm. And it's a really difficult thing to reckon with because huge numbers of intellectuals in Britain and elsewhere at the start of the 20th century were eugenicists. It was a perfectly respectable uh, intellectual position to hold. That actually, wouldn't it be brilliant if we could solve all problems? And, you know, people, you know, there weren't people going hungry and going poor because we we, we just yeah, improved them all. Of course, it was laced, absolutely laced through, not just with classism, but really overt racism mm-hmm. um based around the idea that europeans were the sort of pinnacle of of, of, of race and everyone and else intelligent ones at that right exactly and civilized and, and naturally superior and you know and there was a huge naivety about what it would mean in practice to say we want to improve the human race through selective breeding which started you know off with sterilization of, of poor women african-americans um, and it, it culminated in what we see in the early phases of Nazi Germany, which is huge numbers of the disabled being shipped off to concentration camps. So it's not hard to see why eugenics has now got such a terrible, terrible reputation. But what the challenge is, is to hold all that in your mind alongside the fact that Mary Soaps is getting letters from people saying, I've had nine children. Uh, you know, my uterus is exhausted. The doctor says I'll die if I have another kid. But no one will tell me how not to do it. Um, and that's a level of kind of personal misery that I don't think we have to, by and large, face in Britain today. You know, there are just very few families with 10 children. Absolutely. Um, apart from in a couple of, uh, you know, um, minority communities. But, but, but you can see, what I think is really interesting is, is to put readers in the position where they can see how people came to terrible conclusions, you know, without excusing the terrible conclusions, but presenting them with the challenge of, do you really think in that situation you would have been better? I think it's a big question to ask about abolitionism and slavery too. You know, are you so confident in your moral rectitude that you've been brought up in this entire society built on this terrible, terrible foundation that you would have been one of the very small percentage of people who saw through it and campaigned against it? Absolutely. And on what, if so, what do you think are the things that would have allowed you to do that? And how can we have more of them? Exactly. And I think that's very much a question that's been raised very recently when it comes to the BLM protests and tearing down statues. And so many of them so rightly have to come down. And then there are others that are just a little bit more complicated. And I think it leads a lot of people to think, well, how how are we going to be viewed in 200 years time? What are they pulling our statues down for? You know, assuming we get them. What, you know, what is it that, you know, is it because we're meat eaters? Is it because, you know, we're on the wrong side of, you know, a certain kind of debate? How do we deal with statues um, that remain? How do we treat historical figures like that what do you think I've kind of been thinking about this and I'm like I just sort of now go why why have we got statues <laughs> like it's quite an interesting phenomenon That's certainly hilarious. in the case of, um, of America one of the really interesting things is that a lot of the confederate statues turn out to be crap right they were like mass-produced um, during the period immediately after basically the confederacy lost is an attempt as a, like a last-ditch creation of history and I think that's a really helpful reminder to say that statues are themselves inherently political and putting them up was an inherently political act. It was a celebration. It wasn't an argument that someone mattered and that someone should be revered. 
And what may the people you might have wanted to revere in 1913, why would they be the people that you now want to revere forever? Like you don't buy, you know, immortality. There's no right to that. You can have a kind of, um, I think my husband coined the phrase statute of limitations. No, statute of limitations. Statute of limitations. Um, which is the idea like every 50 years, you just, you reconsider it. And, mm-hmm. and um, I think that's a different debate from, and I think it was actually Sam Friedman, who's a, someone I know on Twitter, is uh, suggested that, if the statue is, you know, if the statue put them up, it, you know, the, the thing they got the statue for is a bad thing, mm-hmm. right? So Cecil Rose isn't a guy who had like a like an amazing life and mm-hmm. a bit of colonialism on the side. Like that was his thing, right? His yeah. his thing. You know, um, King Leopold of Belgium did basically nothing else but. At, like, but oversee a genocidal atrocity filled regime in what is now the Democratic Republic of Congo. He's got nothing else. It's not, he, he didn't even found a school, nothing. So, why would you still accede to his, you know, his vision of himself that he wanted made in perpetuity? But people like Mary Stokes are more complicated because she did a lot of good and she did a lot of good. This is the most complicated bit. She did a lot of good because she was awful. Mm-hmm. Incredibly self-dramatizing and dictatorial, and you know, and she was determined to be a celebrity. She was determined to draw attention to herself, and that was kind of what made her work. You know, that was how she got contraception. People didn't want to talk about cervical caps, but by God, Mary Stokes was going to make them. And that's harder to deal with, I think, is is the idea that you want to. Yeah, I don't want to celebrate Mary Stokes still, but I do want to celebrate her achievement and the fact that people lived because. Of what she did and that she allows you know women to just exist you know exist in a completely different a, a completely different way um do you think the pill because something actually that I, I noticed i was reading the book which is, may sound kind of obvious which is that the women's movement really did happen very quickly it kind of went from being went from being property to being powerful in you know about 100 years and you know democracy arguably took thousands so what was it do you think that made it, everything happen so quickly and what do you think the catalyst was for it and why it happened when it did instead of before or afterwards yeah, in my more miserable, um, pessimistic hours, I do think could the 70s have happened without the availability of widespread contraception. Um, and But also the, the increased ability of women to be able to enter the workplace, which is kind of a linked thing, right? As long as you're, you know, the thing that's fascinating about the suffragettes is even with like Constance Lytton, you know, she was a paid organiser mm-hmm. for the suffragette movement. She was getting like two pounds a week or something like that. And she was able to rent a flat for her own. Annie Kenny, her friend, who's the highest ranking working class woman in WSPU, you know, she was paid a wage. Mm-hmm. Unlike her mother, who was, you know, the mother of 11 children. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I think basically didn't, I'm pretty sure never left Lancashire, actually. Mm-hmm. Um and and that that change in women's lives in the really in the first half, but you know, of this century, first of all, with the kind of increasing knowledge about basic methods of contraception, like the withdrawal method or spiral caps, then you get onto the pill and hormonal contraception, and then the liberalisation of the abortion regime here in '69, mm-hmm. you know, and before that, really backstreet abortions. Um, I think that just fundamentally changed women's ability to politically campaign they weren't bonded to their home anymore yeah. you could be 20 and out doing your own thing maybe going to university and you can really see the material effects of both being kind of married to a man and having children in the I, I was doing a kind of diversity audit of the book and I was like actually I've got if anything too many lesbians <laughs> like more lesbians than you would expect well, I, I mean because they didn't have 
children. Right. So what you had is the advantage of somebody who, you know, whose financial interests were in, aligned with yours, right? Who wasn't embarrassed by all their friends, you know, going, oh, your wife's a bit of a blue stocking, isn't she? Yeah. You know, they were, they had to live unconventional lives. Mm-hmm. They couldn't put, slot into the template. And yeah, and, and very few of them had, had children if they were, you know, if they weren't married first and then, you know, and, and came out later in life. If they were kind of only had exclusively had relationships with women, um, you know, they just, their material conditions of their lives were different. So some of the really brilliant Victorian social reforms, so Sophia Jex Blake, I talk about, yeah. one of this first group of medical students, um, she, was, she was a lesbian. And that's that's a really important part of her story, actually, because it, it puts her both in terms of kind of capitalism and in terms of childbearing out of the usual position of women. Absolutely. Um, there was a term that was used, and I can't remember which touch was in, but it was definitely to do with drinking and, you know, getting served at the bar. And there was a term that you kind of, that, that was used called, I think it's de minimis, uh, mm-hmm. and that people considered this to be just... That this wasn't worth any kind of legal action. The fact that women couldn't get served at the bar was just too small of an issue to really take up anyone's time. And I think that's something that we're still definitely still told today. I mean, I think I'm sure you hear all the time, what are we worried about? We're not living in Saudi Arabia and therefore we should be happy as Larry because clearly, you know, our lives are going okay. Um, What is kind of your response to this? And how do we kind of show people that actually maybe it is the small things that really do matter uh, at the end of the day? Yeah, I find it quite useful to go, oh, wow, you must be doing huge amount of activism about Saudi Arabia can you tell me a bit more about that <laughs> no which always used to happen um Nim Ali who I know is a brilliant um, anti-FGM campaign you know the classic thing was that throughout the 2010s feminists spent the whole time being like come on love it's not FGM yes and I said, well, what happens you know to you because you're actually campaigning on FGM she's like yeah they just don't people just don't say anything like but yeah it was too grim, not interested. So it's not like, you know, so I write in the book about what about tree and like, it's fine if you have a priority, right? It's absolutely, I, for example, I, you know, if people want to make a big deal about not shaving their armpits, I'm, I'm really fine either way. <laughs> but like, it's not going to be my thing that I'm going to spend my limited amount of kind of public facing mm-hmm. time raising awareness of as an issue when I think there are sort of fundamental financial bread and butter issues around things like I don't know, universal credit or funding for domestic violence shelters. Yeah. But I'm not, the time that I'm not spending doing that, I'm spending doing something else. So you yeah. have to distinguish that critique from, you know, if you're setting up a feminist group or a reading club or whatever it might be, mm-hmm. like how do we want to spend our time versus the kind of casual drive by, oh, well, why haven't you sort of, you know, why aren't you doing this? Mm-hmm. And you're like, why, you know, if you think that's a really big issue, you must be, on it like a car bonnet and it turns out they never are and there's a great line from Millicent Fawcett when she gets mm-hmm. exactly this reaction she puts it in a memoir some guy at dinner says to her you know the actions of these militant suffragettes he said you know really put me off I, I can't I can't support votes for women anymore and she says I inquired as to what he was doing to support votes for women at the current time and answer came there none well, absolutely. And it's just kind of something that's kind of, it's kind of thrown about, you know, people who are sort of fighting for that. And you talk a lot, a little bit, especially towards the end of the book about the fifth wave, about what that will mean, what that will involve. And I imagine it will involve a lot of things that people consider to be quite petty. You also talk a lot about how it will be kind of structures and it will be based on structures. Could you unpack that a little bit? Yeah, I went back to the, um, the final demands from the first women's lib conference in um, in Ruskin College, Oxford in 1970, so exactly 50 years ago. And their first demand was free universal 24-hour childcare. Uh, and there were a couple of other, you know, other ones that were, yeah, were really brilliant. But actually, 
<laughs> no, funny enough, no. But like, that's the one that when I've been talking about feminism this year is the one that I've kept coming back to. And I think actually you, you now need to sweep an elderly care into that because that care system is so underfunded. And what happens when there are gaps in personal care? It, well, women pick them up, you know, so often in this case, daughters and, and wives and sisters pick them up. Um, but yeah, the, the coronavirus has exposed this to the extent that actually, you know, I wrote a piece uh, in May saying the coronavirus is a disaster for feminism. And looking at, you know, I talked to experts from epidemics in places like Li um, Liberia and Sierra Leone uh, for Ebola and SARS and MERS uh, and Zika, and all of them affected women's workforce participation. Mm -hmm. And it, I, it's really naive to say, oh, look at us over here in the developed world. Isn't everything so amazing? If you shut down schools and you implement any kind of lockdown measures, someone's going to have to still, like children are still going to need looking after. Mm -hmm. And that is going to fall disproportionately on women. And that's exactly what we've seen. You know, all the surveys suggest now, I think it was men are getting three hours of uninterrupted time for every one when, they're, when we're looking at couples who've got small children. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I'm seeing, you know, hearing really worrying reports of more women being put on furlough, mm -hmm. Um, which I, mean, I guess in sometimes people might think is a kind of kind thing to do, but as the precursor to then layoffs, mm -hmm. you know, teams where mysteriously all the women have, have ended up being the ones who, whose jobs have gone in these, these culls um, that have been necessitated. You know, businesses that need to save money, kind of, if they think they can kind of get away with it, this comes back to what we were saying earlier, you know, whether or not they're, they're offering their difficult employees who are, are mothers with young children. Yes. And, and that stuff you know, is as, is as potent now as it was in 1970. Mm -hmm. um, and I think it's one of the, it is the thing above everything else I would keep coming back to. And it's going to be the hardest, you know, it's going to be not the hardest, but it's going to be an incredibly hard thing to win because what it is is basically government, mm -hmm. this will cost a lot of money. Yep. But you've got to, you know, you've got to do it anyway. Like this is an issue of justice. And they would rather not. They would rather give us, you know, £10 vouchers to eat in restaurants and deal with the fact that there are, you know, women dropping out of the workforce because they can't manage their, their you know, two jobs at the same time, full time. And I think uh, kind of something that you do talk about in the book as being quite important is that I think there's always this, this kind of belief that if feminism's come a certain amount, the way, amount you know, forward, there's no, there's no chance that we're going to kind of slip slip backwards and of course you know you talk about the world wars a lot and about how you know after the first world war things had kind of gone forward quite quickly women were suddenly working earning a wage and thousands of people were watching them play football and then suddenly the men were back and we were like well home again off you go you know you're kind of done here and I think something that is going to be quite a big thing coming up is the fact that in, in the western world um countries are almost going backwards when it comes to population how that might indeed threaten women's rights and i just wonder if you could talk about that a little bit and what we should kind of be on the lookout for oh i think that's something that's really worrying to me so yeah 1919 you have the restoration and pre-war practices act and what that essentially says is if a woman refuses a domestic service job then she you know no more unemployment benefits and if a woman's working in a factory, she can be kicked out to make way for a returning soldier because he's, you know, risked his life in, in the war. Mm -hmm. um, and, and what happened was, yeah, you, there was a huge amount of resentment for women during that time, um, particularly during the First World War, that they were now had all this power that, that the men were away. Um, and I think there's a, yeah, I'm pretty sure there's a David Hare play called Plenty that's about the similar situation happening in the Second World War, about all these women who just get this taste of freedom. Mm -hmm. um, and it's extraordinary how then do you go back to them being squashed back into the box of the 50s you know where you're expected to kind of stay at home and be kind of meek and uh, and sublimate all your needs to your husbands so I think that's always um sorry about my sirens um, 
I think that's always a big risk after you get a kind of set of advances. People find it really challenging and threatening. And there are some countries in Europe that know where that process is very obviously happening. So um, Russia, for example, has given a kind of nudge wink okay to domestic violence, essentially, with the way that it's treated in law. Like, it's you know, it's, it's not a crime that really you're going to end up you know, being thoroughly prosecuted for. Thanks so much for listening to the Trouble Club podcast. While podcasts are great, we prefer the live experience. We host events in London four to six times per month and all of our speakers just happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode. Um. Both Poland and Hungary have taken a very sharp turn to what I, the authoritarian right. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, Viktor Orban in Hungary took the opportunity to award himself a load more powers. Uh, the Law and Justice Party in Poland, which has now won again, mm-hmm. um, you know, is, is is a kind of ultra conservative country a, a party in a, in a Catholic country. So, you know, abortion rights very much under threat. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really worrying. And, you know, and, and Orban has specifically said things like, you know, I don't want immigrants, I want Hungarian children, and has introduced a, a wave of natalist policies. Like, you kind of, if at least you have four kids, you get an SUV or get some money off an SUV. Mm-hmm. It's not, in my opinion, the, uh, you know, a trade-off for the hours of sleep you're going to lose mm-hmm. having four children. I don't think anyone's going to go, that's it. I wasn't going to have any kids, but now I'm going to have four, and then we'll get a, you know, Toyota Yaris or whatever it is. Um but, you know, some of that is is carrot, but I think the stick could come as well. And when you see, um, you know, these, like the uh, the Christchurch massacre uh, perpetrator has just been being sentenced the last couple of days. Now, one of the things that he was talking about in his manifesto was this theory called the Great Replacement. And that is essentially this racist theory that Muslims are having more children than white Europeans and outbreeding white Europeans, you know, that they are replacing white Europeans. And that ties the far right very neatly together with anti-feminism, right? Because why aren't white women having enough children? Well, because, and this is factually accurate, the more uh, educated and affluent women become, the fewer children they have. You know, it's something that drives a huge amount of work that NGOs do in the developing world. The longer they can get girls to stay in education, you know, the, 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 the more they'll have, they'll educate their own children, the more the healthier the children will be. So it's fundamentally premised on a, true fact about how educated women's lives are different from those who leave school much, much earlier. But it's tied together with this strain of racism and eugenics, frankly, about who should be having these babies. But it allows people who want to run a far-right movement to align traditional gender roles with some very extreme right-wing politics. Absolutely. That's that's a very, uh, you know, that fits together as a a very nice totalising conspiracy theory about why the world's gone to hell in a handcart. Absolutely. Um, of course. And one of um, something that you there was kind of a, a simile you did in the book. I think it was kind of a simile where you talked about how misogyny is like an ever mutating bacteria, which I thought was brilliant, which kind of means that, you know, it will continue to kind of arise in different kinds of forms. And I wanted to get your thoughts on the what kind of misogyny do you think that we face today that our grandparents, our grandmothers were spared, for example? Do you think there's any that's kind of, you know, the way it's mutated in the in the 21st century? Well, Susan Faludi writes in Backlash about the big 90s backlash to feminism, which was the idea that all these women who now weren't having children were, were you know, really regretted it. Mm-hmm. Like they, they left it too late to get a man or they were too career orientated to, you know, have kids. Mm-hmm. You know, and the fact is that we went in my mother's generation, only one in nine women not having children by the age of 45 to one in five. 
Yeah. And that, you know, some, that, that suggests that alongside people who are infertile, for whom that can be absolutely heartbreaking, there are more women who simply just don't want to. Mm-hmm. And, and don't regret it. But the only stories we ever hear are, I got to 39 and suddenly realised that I was bereft. And I'm sure that does happen. Like, you know, it's very hard to, you know, to deal with it. I, equally well, I'm sure, although I'm not sure it's not something that ever said out loud, there are people who really, when they've had children, long for the life that they could have had. But, you know, when you've got lovely little people in your house that you love and cherish, it's not really, you know, you've got, you know, there's a kind of break on saying, yeah. and I wish they didn't exist so that Absolutely. I could have a life. As well as the pressure to be a perfect mum, which is just becoming even more, which has almost been amplified, despite the fact that we're trying to move away from that kind of particular. Yeah, totally. And, and women do that to each other. Like, if, you, if that's the arena in which you can win, this is, comes back to the sort of Miss World thing. If that's if yeah. you can win the perfect mum competition or think that you can win the perfect mum competition, then why why wouldn't you enter it? Mm-hmm. Um, the only way to get out of that is just to go, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not playing. I'm just muddling through like everyone else. But, you know, and I, now I think one of the big things is, very old-fashioned misogyny disguised as progressive activism. Okay. Um, and I see that in the way, like I've just written a piece for The Atlantic about the, the use of the term Karen and this kind of hunt for like Karens and trying to pick it apart and saying, well, look, there is a kind of anti-racist critique that's being offered here. Uh, and I think it's really important to talk about that legacy, particularly about, you know, white women weaponizing um, tears in, in particularly in the American context. Mm-hmm. But there is obviously like you only have to do a search of, of the hashtag to find out that actually a lot of white men are mysteriously enjoying telling white women to shut up. Yes. And this may, I mean, explain to, explain the anti-racist activism that's, that's going on here. And I, I put, a, you know, there's a compilation from Paul Joseph Watson of Infowars in which someone just, you know, this woman goes, oh, you're not social distancing to a guy on a bike. And he just goes, shut up, stupid bitch. Yeah. And I thought, well, that's it, though, isn't it? Like, this is the joy of, of the guy from Infowars, is he doesn't have to pretend that he's, he's actually doing it for these women's own good. He's like, actually, I think you should really think about your privilege here. No, yeah. no, he's just upset that someone's told him what to do, and she's a woman, so that's worse. Why am I being told to do by, what to do by a woman? Absolutely. And is the, is the word that I, I reach for immediately. Absolutely. And, the, you know, the idea that people kind of hide behind these um, these kind of, yeah, I'm just doing it for the greater good type, you know, um, type kind of opinions. And you talk about how, you know, something, you know, women shouldn't get locked up as much and something that very much critics of feminism will point out, they'll say, well, shouldn't women be doing equal time, equal time for the same crime? Um, and of course, you know, what, what's our defense of that? What would you, would you say? Sometimes, sometimes women get sentenced more because it's seen as really unnatural. So um, female, um, you know, women who are involved in child murders, are often treated extremely harshly. Mm-hmm. Um, but the, the fundamental thing is that I think women are, there are a hundred women in Britain currently in prison for sexual offences. Okay. Um, so you just have to, so one of the things that's interesting is just that it's, the disparity is enormous between male and female offending rates. Yeah. And the vast majority of women in prison are there for nonviolent offences. And the vast majority of them are are victims of abuse themselves. Actually, I, I think I'm going to. I think I'm right in saying. I think it's two thirds. Mm-hmm. So that's not an excuse, you know, people from who who have committed crimes at all. But it's to say that in more. And I think we should be more understanding to the vast majority of men in prison. I read um, a bit of a stretch by Chris Atkins, who was done for tax fraud over his films, mm-hmm. and gets sent to Wandsworth for. 15 months mm-hmm. and you know the way that he writes about it I, I defy you to come out of there and say that prison is working for anyone or that the people that were locked up it, it is in any way proportional to 
who does the worst crime. So he took, you know, he hangs out with these white collar criminals, but you know, they they bankrupted entire people's savings, probably caused people to commit suicide. They caused incredible human misery. And yet they're sort of seen as a step up from a guy who sells drugs. Phenomenal number of people with mental health problems in prison, phenomenally low literacy rates among um, prison, particularly male prisoners. So I, you know, before we even start having a conversation about men and women being treated differently in the justice system, I think we should have a conversation about everyone being treated differently in the justice system. Because what we've got at the moment is a warehouse that we can, you know, filthy, often badly repaired, people in the cells for 23 hours a day, not fed properly, not given proper medical attention because places are overstretched. You know, and there are wonderful prison officers trying to trying to work in these conditions. But they're really, really, really tough. And you go to, um, I went to Finland and went to a prison there, which is like, they have wonderful prisons there, don't they? They're not even prisons. Right, and people are on tags and stuff like mm-hmm. that. We have an incredibly punitive tabloid culture here about like the solution to crime is to punish people harder. Mm-hmm. And if anything has disproved that, it has been the last 20 to 30 years where we, sentences have continued to spike and it just hasn't worked. Mm-hmm. And a kind of point you mentioned there is that, you know, sorting out the whole problem, you know, before we kind of figure, focus on the feminine side of things. And, you know, you do talk about how, you know, there are certain studies that are coming out saying that working class guys are starting to experience a little bit of a you know fallback when it comes to their you know results um as well as things like suicide rate which it really isn't talked about enough how much men you know suffer you know compared to women when it comes to uh suicide rates to what extent do you think that this is something that women should be talking more about in kind of feminist circles yeah i don't i mean i don't actually think I don't think, I think in the same way that I wouldn't want a load of men coming in and telling me how to run feminism, I don't think necessarily women are the best people equipped to, to lead those conversations about men. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, very, it's a very easy thing to throw at feminism. Why haven't you got anything to say about X? Yeah. And, you know, I think you should say, I, 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 we know that male mental health problems are, are a particularly huge issue. But to my mind, the way that what feminism's contribution to that is to say that's about, you know, a lot of that is about gender roles. Um, you know, a lot of domestic violence is about gender roles, too, and about the feeling that if you've been, you know, t- turning feelings of shame or humiliation into violence, which is something that's kind of um, taught, to, taught to men. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, that, that's the contribution I think that feminism has to make about that. You know, the fact that men can't talk about their feelings, they can't be vulnerable. Mm-hmm. But as far as I can see, the best, you know, I don't know necessarily that the, 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 the kind of male populations that you're trying to reach that you're talking about there want to talk to women about their problems necessarily or want to go to a kind of, you know, want to be told by a woman whose life experience is so different to their own about how to fix their life. And the best kind of male mental health interventions I can see come from people who've been in the same situations. You know, there are wonderful. I was just reading about this um, this football team that's entirely made up of dads who've lost a baby. Oh and I think actually that's the thing, isn't it? Yeah. Like they probably that's you know, given that so much bereavement support is about about mothers, actually it's really good to have something that's just for guys. Absolutely. And they're probably much better equipped to be able to deal with what's particularly like, particularly if you've got feelings of like, well, why am I so upset about this when my partner's been through so much worse? Like you want to be able to have conversations about honest feelings like that. So I think that, you know, feminism has got an analytical role in it, but not necessarily one for, um, you know, for leading it. And, and the school conversation is interesting too, because it is a kind of female default in a world of male defaults. Um, I say in the book, you know, we've, we've built school for, for good girls. Uh, you know the kind of people who sits there very quietly and passively and listens to the teacher mm-hmm. and and you know and entertainment is very different difficult different across ethnic groups there is a particular problem with white working class boys 
And part of that is about the changing shape of the workforce. You know, one of the guys who's a teacher who talks to me said, you know, the idea was, you know, whatever happened you in Barrow, you could go and work in the shipyard. And I can't kind of communicate to them that the shipyards fewer and fewer jobs every year. So what's what's the offer? You know, in a very service-based economy, what were those pink-collar jobs that are dominated by women that men don't want to work in? Mm-hmm. Can we smash the idea that working in a nail salon is something that a man can't do? It's going to be really hard to do that. Really hard. <laughs> Absolutely. We just got a question from uh, one of our members here, Louise. So she asked, to be a successful, difficult woman and campaigner today, do you have to be a loud communicator, e.g. on social media, or are there other skills needed to be an activist? Uh, I think that loudness is sort of overrated because, again, it comes back to the conversation we're having at the very start, which is social media is brilliant for drawing attention to stuff. You know, if it's something that's happened that's outrageous, going, oh, my God, this is outrageous, everyone else come and agree with me that it's outrageous. But people are kind of burnt out a bit by that. And I also think that people can end up feeling shortchanged that just the mere act of lots of people agreeing with them that it's outrageous doesn't actually get anything done. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, my great friend Caroline Criado Perez, who wrote herself a very good book about feminism, um, you know, she's an incredibly effective campaigner, both on banknotes and then on the getting a statue. And the skills about that, yeah, absolutely. Some of it is involved is about raising uh, attention and, and therefore also money. But actually developing relationships with the people that you need to do, you know, you need to work with and plugging away at it. Like the thing is, almost any campaigning just takes a huge amount of time. Um, And particularly things like research. That's the kind of thing I think people don't necessarily think about. You know, if you want to make the case that you need more statues of women, you need to know fundamentally how many statues there are in Britain, how many more are of women. You need to go in a way and do all that. Then you need to find out who's actually in charge of planning consent for Parliament Square, right? Who's the, who are the people that you need to ask permission from to get this? Who do you need to get on, on side to do it? All of those interpersonal skills, which, you know, women traditionally are considered to be pretty good at. So that those should be really helpful. But... I think it's very um, it's very seductive to think that actually you just need to shout a lot, but it tends to just kind of create a, a, a kind of miasma of, of, of interest. But when that fades away, as it inevitably does, what's left? And, and the best campaigning organisations I've seen in the last couple of years have been absolutely relentless, just at the really kind of boring grind of putting out, like working through policy papers and getting research and, and making links between people. Absolutely. Um, and kind of mentioned, kind of going off what you said there about social media, I think you mentioned in the book that, um, you know, we suffered, you know, the suffragettes were very kind of focused in what they were trying to achieve. And because of social media, so many more people have a voice, which is amazing, but it can mean that we're losing cohesion when it comes to these kinds of movements. What would you kind of say about that? Yeah, I think there's a kind of, um, I mean, on one level, very understandable and good suspicion of kind of authority and top down being kind of you know ordered to be a foot soldier but equally well I don't think any efficient campaigning organization can operate as a total kind of anarchic Mm free-for-all not least because again as I said before you just have to put in a lot of hours Mm -hmm. Um, and that's the thing is that you know the suffragettes are only 1500 of them and they had what you now call you know we'd call strong bonds you know they lived together in flats with each other they saw each other every day they talked all the time you know they were friends and when you get surveilled by the police and tortured and imprisoned you need that level of you know um commitment really that you're not just not gonna have um if you if you're someone who's just kind of passer by and also you do need to some extent to accept that some people get to make decisions um you know we've had some interesting experiments in the last decade particularly on the left about 
much more collective decision making. And I think it's probably great, but at some point, someone's got to, you know, someone's got to wrap up the meeting and actually go away and be in charge of implementing stuff. And if you end up with your power structures being too diffuse, then what ends up happening is that everybody just has a big old therapeutic chat about all the things that they think are wrong. And you never, no one's ever responsible for going away and ensuring that anything happens about that. Being the paperwork involved, absolutely. Right. And actually, yeah, whenever you, like, whenever there comes to be some really hard work to be done, it's really interesting to see how many people are, are still around. Absolutely. Um, so I'm going to go for one final question here because we're kind of coming up to time. Uh, you talk about Deborah Cameron and her work on language. And at the end of the book, you kind of have a great last chapter that's about, you know, what it means to be a difficult woman, what a difficult woman is. Do you kind of think that, I, I kind of got a little bit sad as well, because it kind of, you know, dawned on me that, you know, a, a man who had done any of these things wouldn't be referred to as difficult at all. What do you think a man kind of in a similar situation would have been referred to? And do you think kind of at the end of the day, there's kind of no such thing as a difficult woman? That's just what we've been called because we're kind of rebelling back from a point of you know a kind of a point a point of being um kind of downtrodden we're just rebelling back to a place where men have felt comfortable for such a long time yeah I think that's probably true I do like it people do send me messages all the time saying like I'm now I can now consider myself a, a woman and, and actually the, the particularly the chapter on divorce which I talk about my divorce people sort of kind of go you know I was living this very particular kind of life on tram lines doing what everyone expected of me trying not to kind of cause a fuss or, or ask for too much and now no now is the time and yeah. another strand of women going like now I've been through the menopause I'm really angry I'm really angry about a load of stuff yeah. and it's my time to be angry and I go okay great but um but this is why my second book which is the one I mentioned about genius I think is the kind of companion to this because you get all these exceptional men who who have got worse personalities than the women in this book. Absolutely. And the world bends itself around them. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, he's so brilliant. Oh, you know, he's such a, you know, he's such a genius. He's, you know, he, he can't possibly be expected to do, you know, this aspect of life, or he can't be expected to treat people in his life particularly well. You know, he's, he's, diff- he's somehow different to us. Mm-hmm. And it strikes me that, you know, I mean, Mrs. Pank has got a bit of it because she was a bit of a diva. Mm-hmm. Mary Stokes, actually, um, to some extent. But the world is more ready to bend itself around men who are sort of demanding and uncompromising. You know, when I think of, again, I had to refer back to that sort of Steve Jobs model of like, you know, he's a, he's a perfectionist. You know, he's a visionary and a perfectionist. Mm-hmm. And I don't think those qualities get read so positively in women. No, absolutely. Well, Helen Lewis, thank you. Thank you so much for joining us tonight. It has been amazing. Um, for everyone watching, we'll be sending through uh, all the details you need about how to get a hold of uh, difficult women. And we'll also be sending info about um, your newsletter, uh, The Blue Stocking. Thank you so much. Thank you every- so much to everyone uh, who's watched us today. And everyone, I hope everyone has a good evening and gets some, get some dinner, I think. It's probably about time for that. So thank you very much, Helen. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been amazing. Thank you for having me. Have a good evening, everybody. You were looking for trouble and you found it. We are a special society, a talks and dinners club where you can hear some of the finest voices talking on everything from politics to fiction. They all happen to be women. From evenings with Margaret Atwood and Gloria Steinem to our monthly news dinners and culture clubs, there's so much to enjoy and so many brilliant people to meet. Learn more by visiting our website at www.thetroubleclub.com or clicking the link in the description of this episode.